Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself. We, we thank you for the various ways in which you have shown something of your, your being and your, your might and your, your majesty and your heart of, of love and mercy. We thank you uh, above all for the Lord Jesus Christ, um, but we thank you too for your written word, uh, the scriptures. We thank you that they uh, spoke of his coming. We thank you that they recorded something of his life while he was here on earth. We thank you that they tell us about what he is yet to do. And we pray that uh, as we read a difficult part of your word uh, together this evening, we ask that you would give us understanding. Uh, we pray that you would help us not to read more into it than we should. We pray that you would help us to avoid uh, the possible pitfalls. Uh, but above all, we pray that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ uh, so that our souls might be fed, our faith might be built up, and we might be encouraged to, to serve you as your people. And we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Zechariah part two. <coughs> I'm not sure how many parts altogether there are going to be, but we come to part two uh, this evening. Now, it's not so long ago that we had our annual church vision day. Um, that could sound a bit alarming, couldn't it? Vision day. Um, but what we tend to mean by it, I think, is really a time to share ideas, uh, to consider ideas, discuss them, pray about them. That's what we mean by our church vision day. But Zechariah, well, he didn't have a vision day. He had a vision night. Um, during this one night, he saw a series of eight genuine visions from the Lord. The Lord was showing him things directly. Now, last time we looked at uh, the first six verses um, of chapter one, uh, where we saw the first word of the Lord that came to Zechariah. It was in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. Now, that word of the Lord was a message that Zechariah was to declare to the people. And it was to consist of uh, a word of announcement. Uh, the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. It was also to include a word of appeal. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And a word of assurance. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And a word of advice. Do not be like your fathers. So that first word of the Lord, I think you'll agree, it was very plain. It took the, the form of, of plain speech. Um, it was direct. It was to the point. It was easy to understand. But um, we now come to the next word of the Lord that came to Zechariah. And this was far from plain speech. Um, it took the form of strange visions. And we're going to look at the first of them tonight in uh, verses 7 to 17. And it's really almost cinematic in, in, in its scope. You know, as in a, a film, 
Uh, it begins with some introductory information. It's followed by an opening scene, which leads to the ensuing dialogue, and it ends with a take-home lesson. So firstly, let's uh, see the introductory information there in verse 7. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah again. Uh, and this time we're told it was on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat in the second year of Darius. So it's about three months after that first word of the Lord that came to Zechariah. But as we've said, it came in a very different way. Um, in verse 8, we see that Zechariah said, I saw in the night and behold. So, so God wasn't speaking to Zechariah verbally. He was showing him something visually. Zechariah had a vision. He saw something that he would not have seen had God not have revealed it to him. We mustn't think that this was a sort of series of, of dreams. Um, later in, in this series of visions, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, we read, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So it seems there that, that Zechariah had fallen asleep at this point, uh, and he had to be woken in order to see the next vision. He, he had to be awake in order to see it. So, so these weren't dreams, they, they were tangible things that he was really, that he was really seeing. He really was being shown something. They weren't the imaginings of his mind, he was being shown something. He really saw it. With that in mind, let's look at verses 8 to 17, where we're told about this first of the eight visions. And in verses 8 and 9, we have, if you like, the opening scene. It begins to be set there in verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Films quite often begin with a, a long opening shot of a, a scene, don't they? Yet nothing happens. The camera just focuses on the scene before any action begins to take place. And verse 8, a bit like that. Nothing much is happening. Zechariah is simply gazing on this opening <coughs> scene. Uh, what did he see? Well, the first thing he noticed was a man riding on a red horse. Now, the ESV, I think, rightly says, behold a man riding on a red horse. The NIV omits behold for some reason, but it's there in the text, and it suggests that this man on the red horse was a, a striking figure. He, he dominated the scene. He drew Zechariah's attention. But next, Zechariah noticed that this man was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Uh, the word glen makes it sound like some wild Scottish scene, doesn't it? Yeah, but we, we mustn't think Braveheart here. Um, the the, the NIV um, has, has the word ravine. Uh, the idea is probably of some sort of, of large hollow in the ground, which perhaps seems a strange place to see uh, a horse and its rider. And then Zechariah noticed that behind the man there were red, sorrel and white horses. 
not quite sure what sorrel is, I don't know if the artists know, but anyway, there are three different coloured horses. Ready brown colour. Ready brown, right, now I know. See, I've learned something tonight. <laughs> now, we're not told whether these horses had riders on them or not. It's not even clear whether there were three horses, one of each colour, or, or there were lots of horses that there happened to be of those three different colours. But that's, uh, that, that's what he saw. Now, you're puzzled. Um, Zechariah was, uh, so he, he did the sensible thing. You know, what, what do we tell children to do if they don't understand something? Ask. And that's exactly what Zechariah did. There in verse 9, he asked a, a question. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? Who, who was he asking here? Well, we're not told directly but we are told who replied to the question. Uh, continuing in verse 9, we see that he referred to the angel who talked with me. So Zechariah wasn't alone as he saw this vision. There was an angel talking with him. So his question must have been addressed to this angel. In fact, we'll find that this angel remained with him throughout the whole series of eight visions. Sometimes he was asking Zechariah questions. What, what do you see? What do you think this means? Other times, uh, Zechariah was asking him questions, as we see here. You can almost imagine the pair of them sort of sat on the sofa watching the television, can't you? You know, that they were sat there watching these visions unfold before them, and they were discussing with one another what they were seeing. If you'd have been in Zechariah's position watching this opening scene I wonder what question you would have asked what, what would you have most wanted to know I know what my question would have been who's the man on the red horse he, he dominated the, he, he was dominating the scene wasn't he but in fact Zechariah didn't ask who's this who's this man uh, in verse 9 his question was what are these my lord um, he was more interested in the horses in the background than he was in this uh, striking man on the red horse. Now, we'll see in due course that this man was none other than the Son of God. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. And the horses, we're told, uh, were his servants. And I think we must ask ourselves how often we can be a bit like Zechariah. We have Christ held up before us and we're more interested in his, in his servants. We know him as the risen, glorified Son of God and we're distracted by mere men, the things of men, the things of this world. Well, may our hearts and, our, and eyes and minds be drawn to him. But notice uh, the reply of the angel. Uh, he said I will show you what they are you notice he, he didn't say I will tell you. you know, you've asked me a question and I'm going to give you the answer but he said I will show you and you remember Zechariah is seeing a vision uh, so far it's been a bit like a video on pause and when the angel says I will show you it's almost as though he, he leans forward and hits the play button because then things start to happen. 
So as we move on into verses 10 to 13, we, we see the ensuing dialogue. In verse 10, this, this man among the myrtles spoke and he explained that the horses are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The Lord had sent them. Now, now back in verse 9, Zechariah addressed the angel as my Lord. And the word there that's translated as Lord means something like sir or master. It's a, a polite form of respect. But here in verse 10, where the man on the horse says, these are they whom the Lord has sent out to patrol the earth, the word Lord is, is Jehovah, it's Yahweh. It's talking about the Lord God. So it was God who had sent these horses out throughout the earth. I think that tells us, doesn't it, that we mustn't think of God as being somehow distant, remote, uh, locked away in heaven and un uninterested in the things of, of earth and the affairs of men. He knows what's going on. He's well informed. He's, he's involved and he intervenes. But then as soon as that had been explained, um, what, what these horses were, Zechariah sees them reporting back. You read there in verse 11, And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, who had sent them out? It was the Lord. It was God. Who would you expect them to report back to? Well, surely you'd expect them to report back to the one who had sent them, which was the Lord. Who did they report to? Well, we're told they reported to the angel of the Lord. Now, who's this? Is this a, a new character that, that suddenly appeared in the vision? It could seem so, but we're told that he was standing among the myrtle trees. So it seems that he was the man on the red horse. The man on the red horse is the angel of the Lord. Now you find that a person referred to as the angel of the Lord appears on, in, on other occasions in the Old Testament. And when he does, he's invariably recognised as being a divine being by those who see him. First mention we have is in Genesis 16, 7-8. Uh, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur and he said Hagar servant of Sarai where have you come from and where are you going she said I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai so he was speaking here to, to Hagar the, the, the servant of, of Abram's wife uh, Sarai and then continuing into verse 13 of Genesis 16 we read so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her you are a God of seeing for she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So, so she recognised that the angel of the Lord was God. She recognised him to be God. Another example is in Judges 13, where uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. And he said that she had conceived and bear a son who was to be called Solomon. Uh, and in verses 21 and 22 of Judges 13, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, 
And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. So Manoah and his wife had met the angel of the Lord, and Manoah's response was, We'll die. We've seen God. The fact that the uh, angel of the Lord appeared on earth as a man who, who was recognised to be God by those who saw him strongly suggests that he was a, a pre-incarnation ma- manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems that the man on the red horse in this vision was the Son of God. Now just as you wouldn't expect to find a horse and rider among the myrtle trees in a hollow, so you wouldn't expect to find the Son of God on earth as a man. But he was seen on earth in the vision, because in the fullness of time, he would become God-made man, living among men here on earth. Well, next in verse 11, we see what they reported back to him. They said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. What have they found? They found all the earth remains at rest. Well, that, that sounds like wonderful news, doesn't it? Yeah, the whole world is at peace. What, what a wonderful, cosy thought. You know, if only it were true. Excellent. But you see, that wasn't what the angel of the Lord thought. If you look at verse 12, we read, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Now here the angel of the Lord, who is God, is addressing the Lord of hosts, who is God. God the Son is addressing God the Father. In fact, he's he's really interceding before uh, God the Father uh, on whose behalf well it's on behalf of, of Jerusalem and, and the towns of Judah he's interceding on behalf of the people of God he can't be happy about the world seeming to be at rest and in peace when his people are still in captivity true some had come back but the majority of, of the people of God were still in Babylon. They might just as well have still been under that judgment. So his plea is that God will now show mercy. Now there's much in the vision to puzzle over. Um, The commentators suggest all sorts of fanciful meanings. Um, Why was the horse red? What was the significance of the colours of the other horses does the hollow represent the low spiritual state of the people or was it the Kidron Valley where the returned exiles were camped outside uh, Jerusalem do the myrtle trees represent Israel Um, some of the commentators uh, suggest that that's that that is the case that's what they mean (coughs) but um I have to say, I can't find any biblical reason to think that the myrtles represent Israel. Um, If the myrtles represent anything, it would seem to be um, that they represent the Lord's gracious provision of peace and protection, because in Isaiah 55, there's there's reference there to, um, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. So the idea is that because of the Lord's 
gracious and merciful intervention uh, they'll be protected against enemies and have peace and, and prosperity so it, they, they could refer to something like that we can't be sure about any of those ideas but I think we need to focus on the key points and those really are that the man on the red horse was the angel of the Lord who is God so God was present as a man and even though the world seemed to be at peace all was not well because Israel was still suffering under God's judgment and the angel of the Lord interceded on behalf of Israel that's what Zechariah was being shown God was with them in the person of the angel of the Lord who was interceding for them and of course that's exactly the case uh, with the incarnate son of God uh, who came in as the person Jesus Christ isn't it you read Jesus' prayer in John 17 verse 9 he said I am praying for them I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours you see Jesus prayed to the Father on behalf not, not of the nation of Israel now but for those that the Father had given him and now after his death and uh, resurrection and ascension he continues to pray for his people reading Hebrews 7 23 to 25 the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever Con consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them now knowing that God was interceding to God on their behalf would have encouraged Zechariah but would that intercession do any good would it make any difference well next look at verse 13 and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me this was clearly the response of the Lord to the intercession of the angel of the Lord uh, his plea had been heard and it resulted in the Lord speaking gracious and comforting words and notice that uh, Zechariah said that these words were spoken to the angel of the Lord who talked with me and then the angel uh, th that was with Zechariah went on to tell Zechariah what the Lord had said to him uh, and we read in 14 to 17 there so the angel who talked with me said to me cry out thus says the Lord of hosts I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for, for Zion and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease for while I was angry but a little they furthered the disaster therefore thus says the Lord I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it declares the Lord of hosts and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem cry out again thus says the Lord of hosts my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem and that really sums up the take home message uh, in verse 14 the angel talking to Zechariah uh, told him to cry out 
what was he to cry out? Well, thus says the Lord of hosts. He was to proclaim what the Lord had said. Now, it's interesting that, you know, having had this vision, the angel didn't tell Zechariah to proclaim what he'd seen. Rather, he said, proclaim, thus says the Lord of hosts. That The angel told Zechariah what the Lord had said, and that's what Zechariah was to proclaim. Why not proclaim what he'd seen? Well, it's because a vision, even though given by God, it isn't definitive. It needs interpretation. It's easily misunderstood. You know, we've seen that just in this vision, haven't we? There's lots about it that we're not sure about. We can't explain. And if we try to sort of leap to all sorts of uh, explanations of our own imagining, we'd, we'd come to all sorts of ridiculous conclusions, wouldn't we? That the lesson... Uh, for us is that we're not to proclaim what we what we think or what we feel or what we experience we're to declare the word that God has spoken and of course that culminates in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately Jesus is the word of God and we are to proclaim him so what did the Lord say Zechariah was to proclaim well Look at verses 14 to 17 and you'll see that phrase, thus says the Lord, occurs three times. And, and each time it does, I think it shows an aspect of what Zechariah was to proclaim. So firstly, I think we can say that Zechariah was to proclaim enduring truths about God. You see that from verses 14 to 15. You could say it was to declare aspects of God's mindset. Um, in verse 14 there, uh, the, the Lord said, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Zechariah was to preach the jealousy of God. Now, in everyday speech, uh, certainly nowadays, jealous means much the same as envious, doesn't it? Uh, and we rightly think of that as a bad thing. We, we discourage jealousy. But you see, the Hebrew word that's been translated here as jealousy, well, it comes from the verb to glow. Uh, and it speaks of a, a burning desire to keep and protect that which belongs to you. So in saying I am very jealous for Jerusalem, God meant I have a burning desire to keep and protect my people. Uh, and the verb here is in the perfect tense. So it's not that the Lord has now become jealous for his people. He always was and he always will be. He, he is always for his people whatever the outward circumstances might suggest the fact is that God is for his people even throughout the captivity when things look so dark and so bleak nonetheless he had a holy jealousy for them he always wants the best for his people and we need to hold on to that truth uh, especially in uh, especially in, in difficult times. 
Now in contrast with that, look at verse 15. The Lord says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. What a a contrast you, you have there. I am exceedingly jealous for, and in contrast with that you have, I am exceedingly angry with. Who's he angry with? Well, he says it's the nations that are at ease. And contrary to what you might think, the idea there isn't really of the uh, of the nations being at peace and enjoying harmony and prosperity and so on. Invariably, whenever the, the Hebrew phrase that's been translated as at ease occurs in the Old Testament, it's being used in a, a bad sense. It's being used in a, a derogatory sense. Um, it shows the kind of attitude that, that we see in Amos 6 verse 1 where we read, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the, the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. You see, the idea of being at ease, well, it, it shows a, a proud and an arrogant attitude. It speaks of being self-confident, self-assured, self-sufficient, self-satisfied. And the Lord is angry with those who trust in themselves or other things rather than in him. It's always the case. But now we see he wasn't merely angry. He was exceedingly angry with, with these proud nations why? Well, the answer is there in verse 15. Uh, the Lord said, For while I was angry but a little, you know, he's, he's always been angry with them because they've always gone their own way, done their own thing and been against God. He's always been angry with them. But now he's exceedingly angry because he says they furthered the disaster. Uh, and the idea seems to be here that although the Lord had actually used these nations as a an instrument of judgment upon his people, they'd overstepped the mark. That they'd, they'd gone too far. They'd been too severe. They'd been brutal with the captives, and that's what made the Lord exceedingly angry. So Zechariah was to proclaim these constant facets of God's mindset. He is always jealous for his people. We're his people. That should give us great confident shouldn't it he's always angry with those who think they can manage without him and he's especially angry with those who harm his people well we took to proclaim these truths about god and, and comfort ourselves in the knowledge of those truths the second thing that zechariah was to proclaim was what god was going to do uh, verse 16 therefore thus says the lord I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Now, although the ESV says, I have returned to Jerusalem, the NIV says, I will return, and the New King James Version says, I am returning. Uh, I tend to think that either will return or am returning are better than have returned. Um, you remember in, in verse 3, uh, it said, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. 
Well, that suggests that the Lord hadn't returned to them uh, at that time. But he was now saying that he was about to, or he was going to. Well, does that mean that he was now returning to them because they'd returned to him? Well, I don't think so, because you remember the, the message being given to Zechariah as a consequence of the angel of the Lord interceding. Uh, what had he prayed? How long will you withhold mercy? And what's the Lord now saying? I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. He, he wasn't returning to them because of anything they'd done to deserve it. He was returning in mercy and grace because of the intercession of the Son of God. Uh, and neither does God accept us on the basis of anything we do. Thinking about that this morning, weren't we? It's all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ who intercedes on our behalf. Now this passage doesn't tell us uh, why the Son of God can intercede successfully on behalf of sinners. But we, we know from the New Testament, don't we, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession and he does so by pleading the merits of his shed blood on our behalf. 1 John 2 once too, for instance, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate <coughs> with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you see, Jesus can intercede, he can be our advocate with the Father, and he can prevail, he can succeed, because by shedding his blood on the cross... He's propitiated God's wrath uh, against our sins. Now we're told two things that would result from his return. Firstly, he said that once he'd returned to Jerusalem, my house shall be built in it. In other words, the temple would finally be rebuilt. And it was, not all that long after this. Secondly, he said that once he'd returned to Jerusalem... The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So as well as the temple being rebuilt, the city would also have been rebuilt. There'd be something tangible that could be measured. The rebuilding of the temple and the city, well, they were both things that did come to pass. That there was a, a literal historical fulfilment to that prophecy came about because the Lord came to them. So the lesson here is that we can't accomplish anything for the Lord in our own strength. We depend on him being present to bless. Think of Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Or if you want a New Testament equivalent, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. If we're to accomplish anything in, in God's service, we need his presence, we need him to be with us and to bless. But then thirdly, 
Zechariah was to proclaim the consequences of what the Lord was going to do. The consequences of the Lord returning to Jerusalem uh, went beyond the temple and the city being rebuilt. We read there in verse 17, Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. It's not just that the temple would be rebuilt and that Jerusalem uh, would be, be rebuilt, but this is a, a prophecy of great blessing, of great prosperity and enjoying all the benefits of being the Lord's chosen people. Now, has that prophecy been fulfilled for Israel? And the honest answer is no. You know, although the temple was rebuilt, it was destroyed long ago, uh, the rebuilt city of Jerusalem, well, yeah, it still exists, but it's been a, a battlefield throughout history. It's hardly a picture of peace and prosperity. Um, it's the focus of conflict and unrest, even now in our day, isn't it? So it has been all of my lifetime. So... Um, it's this prophecy of peace and prosperity, prosperity for Jerusalem. Well, it seems hollow to say the least, doesn't it? Either the prophecy through Zechariah was not true, or the fulfilment is yet to come. Now, this prophecy, it was the word of the Lord. Zechariah was to cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. So it's God's word, so it's inconceivable that it won't come to pass. But the fulfilment has not been realised in the physical city of Jerusalem. And I suggest neither will it ever be realised in the physical city of Jerusalem. Rather the fulfilment is in the spiritual Jerusalem, the, the Jerusalem above. Now that's going to come increasingly clear in, in the following visions. But the, the promised peace is not an earthly peace it's a peace with God the promised prosperity is not in material things but in spiritual blessings from God and they begin in God's kingdom in Christ which is expressed in the church and they're ultimately realised to the full when Christ returns to usher in the new heaven and the new earth well may we each overflow with the prosperity that is the riches that we have in Christ. May we know the, the comfort that only comes from knowing that the Lord is with us in Christ and that he intercedes for us. May we have that assurance that comes from knowing that the Lord is exceedingly jealous for us because he chose us in Christ. Amen.